0: Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Uh, Today we have two guests with us from the Center for the European Union, Transatlantic, and Trans-European Space Studies at Virginia Tech. We have Dr. Yanis Divaktis and Colin Baker. Welcome to the podcast, both of you.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Yeah. Very much looking forward to having you on today uh, so that we can kind of have a bonus episode here to talk about the war in Ukraine. I know this is something that all of us around the world really have our eyes fixed on at the moment, but especially our students, I think, are incredibly interested and engaged in this right now. And so I think it's very timely that we talk about this sort of breakdown not only what is happening in the war but also some causes as well as I specifically want to talk about the European Union's approach to the war and what it has done and what it may be continuing to do as the war progresses. So I sort of want us to start out maybe just talking about why did Russia invade Ukraine in the first place? Or maybe a better question is, why did Putin decide to invade Ukraine in the first place? Uh, Yanis, would you like to start?
1: Yes, I would try to start. Um, We have to make a distinction between uh, things that we know and things that
2: we don't know. There are many reasons, more at least more than one, that President Putin decided to
1: launch an attack. Some of this may be true,
2: some of them may not be true. Uh, there are different interpretations, but I think the one which stands out is that
1: it was in the national interest. Of the Russian Federation not to be surrounded by countries which
2: are members of NATO. It's we can bring in their own uh, land particular
1: military systems that would threaten the Russian Federation because of their proximity. So it's a difference, there's a difference in the mind of President Putin or having a, a military system few hundred miles away than to have something very close to the borders of Ukraine and very close to St. Petersburg or Moscow. So the time of uh, responding to potential attack is much smaller. So this makes Russia more vulnerable. Uh, We can also say that uh, following the end of the Cold War and the dissolution of the Soviet Union, we have a unipolar world where the United States
2: is the dominant great power. China is a rising power. India may be a rising power,
1: but meanwhile, Russia was coming back on its feet. And probably this was indication or an opportunity for President Putin to redress the global balance of power. Whether he miscalculated or not, this is a different case. But this is the, for me as a scholar, the two most important ways of understanding this conflict.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting you use the word balance of power there. Um, I think a lot of our students, when they hear balance of power, they think you know World War One and you know the causes of World War One. And it does sort of seem like that. It seems like, you know, the world is sort of operating on uh, a little scale that uh, is oscillating back and forth, maybe between the United States, China, and like you said, India even rising as a global power and Russia has sort of been in the mix, but maybe not so much, like, yeah.
1: Yes, I mean, uh... We move from a bipolar world order with the Soviet Union, and the United States. We have the collapse of this bipolar world. We have the unipolar world. And uh, unipolarity brings certain uh, challenges with it. Uh, how to maintain global hegemony. Uh, what it means for the application of international law Russia starts finding itself slowly, slowly being on a better, if you want, position than before. And that was time, probably, for the Russian Federation, according to its calculations, to say, Here we are. Actually, he said in 2007 with a Munich speech. So he, he was calling in a, at least bipolar, if not a multipolar world. So, again, uh, whether it was a miscalculation or not, that's a different question.
0: Yeah, anything that you wanted to add to that, Colin?
3: Yeah, I would say that Russia's geography does not change over time. Uh, its borders have changed, but its basically need to have a large kind of buffer zone between it and any potential enemies. Um, goes back to Peter the Great, goes back to um, the 1800s. Um, These are things that students can connect with in their classes that um, Russia feels threatened and needs to push its border west just from a basic geopolitical point of view. And that that doesn't change over time, even though governments change and democracies rise and empires fall, that is a basic truth of, of Russian geography that will always guide its foreign policy.
1: May I also add something here? Putin's arguments are not unique. These are arguments that were made by very famous American scholars and policy
2: makers. George Kennan spoke about the need for NATO not to expand. Henry Kissinger said that the NATO
1: can expand, but not having foreign troops or military systems close to Russia. Kissinger also pointed out how important Ukraine is to Russia and therefore we should not push so much. But of course we have the other case which is associated with the Brzezinski doctrine. According to which Ukraine is very important to Russia and if Ukraine is taken away, Russia will be very vulnerable and weak.
0: And I just want to pause there because I still think, and this is just, this is me and I realize, you know, I'm probably uh, the least equipped person in this Zoom room right now, but I think maybe this is a question popping into the minds of others listening. Why is the Ukraine so important to Russia? I mean, why the Ukraine, you know, the Soviet Union had multiple satellite states and uh, it was in a sphere of influence beyond just Ukraine. So why Ukraine and why now?
1: Ukraine has always been important uh, for historical cultural, and other reasons. But for strategic reasons is the soft belly of the Russian Federation. As Cyprus, a small island is the soft belly of Turkey, that's why Turkey invaded Cyprus. So there are certain strategic locations where, which are extremely important.
3: Yeah, I would add that um, it's been important in European history for a long time. It's not just important only to Russia, but
2: more important.
3: Um, Timothy Snyder, who's um, got a couple of excellent books on this region I think, I believe his heritage is Ukrainian. Um, he wrote a great book called Bloodlands, which really is talking about the Eastern Europe, but specifically Ukraine, between the Nazis and Stalin in the 30s and 40s. But he talked about how World War II, at least for, for Hitler as well, revolved around Ukraine and the idea of Lebensraum. So it's it's not just a periphery area in the east of Europe that we can forget about. It's actually kind of central to many uh, mm-hmm. European history
1: events. And always is part in terms of geopolitics and geopolitical theories part of the heartland and whoever occupies the heartland controls the world. That was the geopolitical theory. And then we, we had another geopolitical theory which was related to the containment of the country that was, con- that was controlling the heartland. It was the Rimland that was advocated by Nicholas Spikeman. So,
0: before we move on from causes and sort of the motivations here, I just want to zero in on Putin a little bit. And you know, besides besides creating sort of a buffer zone for Russia and besides you know, occupying this territory that, as you said, is very geopolitically important and culturally important to Russia. Is there something else motivating him? I mean, people have even ventured to sort of say that he might be, you know, going a bit mad because of COVID and that he's acting a bit out of sorts. Or is this just, you know, in line with what he's been doing Historically since he came to the presidency?
1: Most certainly, as a person who uh, came out of the World War II and the Cold War, and serving the KGB and going through historical experiences, special about the dissolution of the Soviet Union, as a leader, you have a kind of uh, nostalgia of the greatness of the past. Uh, But most importantly, even under the Yeltsin years, we had a Russian doctrine, the doctrine of the near abroad. That was equivalent to Monroe doctrine. So as the United States doesn't want anybody any of the European or other global powers to be present in the Americas, Russia doesn't want through its doctrine and it was not Putin's doctrine, it was Primakov's doctrine under the Gelsin administration that the near abroad was an area of influence. And the area of influence was coinciding with the space that the Soviet Union occupied before.
3: So, I, I actually have a cultural question for you, Yanis, because I know a, a lot of this is uh, Putin can't uh, live with an autocratic Russia next to a democratic Ukraine. It's too much of a threat to, to his own system of government because Russians can see an alternative that works. But I, I wanted to ask you about the, the role of the Orthodox religion um, and how, how central is that to Putin's um, desire to, you know, the, the ancient capital, Kiev. Is that, is that a significant factor, would you say, in this, in this conflict as well?
1: Uh, certainly, Putin used Christianity and the Christian church, Orthodox Church as a way to create a new identity for Russia. Uh, and still has an influence for in other countries, but... Uh, I think strategic considerations are more important than cultural considerations at this moment. And I tell you some examples, for instance, when uh, the Turkish government decided to turn the Hagia Sophia into a mosque, the Greek Orthodox Church expecting the Russian Orthodox Church and President Putin to say something. Instead, President Putin to say anything. So to some extent, uh, tap the back of President Erdogan instead. So sometimes religion can be used for political purposes, for providing an identity, but not necessarily all the time.
0: Yeah, and just from my tangential understanding of it too, it seems to just piggyback off of what Yanis is saying, it seems that the Russian Orthodox Church is being used almost just to bolster that sort of cultural support that Putin doesn't seem to have from the actual people of Russia. Um, And to almost say like from an additional sort of authoritarian figure inside of the country, it seems like that. He's using it to almost say, you know, if the people, or at least what we're hearing in the United States, mostly aren't supporting the war itself, then at least he can get support from another sort of, not regime, but another sort of um, authority within Russia
1: itself. Uh, Again, uh, we understand authoritarianism in the West in the different ways that the Russians understand it. Authoritarianism has been dominant and very welcome in the Soviet Union and Russia, in Charles Russia. The reason is that before Peter the Great, Russia was always vulnerable to outside attacks and weak leadership. Since Peter the Great modernized Russia, every leader afterwards tried to have an iron fist because respect, for very powerful leaders
2: is what makes Russian people safe. We do not forget, President Putin is much more democratic,
1: if you want, in comparison to some other parties that exist in Russia, the Communist Party or the Nationalists. the other thing is, although it's authoritarian,
2: doesn't mean that the majority of the country is not behind him. I mean, in Hungary,
1: there's authoritarian government and the majority of the country is behind. The Hungarian prime minister, the same thing comes with Poland. You may win elections and you may have the majority behind you, but, uh, There has never been real democracy
2: ever in the Soviet Union and Russia.
3: Yeah, I was just gonna actually say a very similar thing. I am hearing things too that in the Western world, we, we believe our own stories just like they believe their own stories over there. And the story we're liking to believe, we want to believe is that the ordinary Russian is against the war if they only knew about it, right? but I'm hearing that actually not so many Russians as we think are against the war. There's, there is actually some support for Putin amongst ordinary Russians.
1: Actually, uh, Colin, you're right. Uh, it was, I think other CNN or NBC that I heard that President Putin's popularity rise from 60% to 70% as a result of the war. Also, we should not confuse what happens, Leningrad or Moscow, because, There is so much rural areas and we can see what happens in the United States between the divide, the divide between the urban areas and the rural areas. And it's very extensive because Russia is a huge country. So I
0: think that's those are two really interesting points I think that could be explored in the classroom as well is looking at the geography of Russia and how that can influence you know the people's perception of uh, of what the government is doing and what actions are being taken but also I'm curious because so one thing that we hear I think through like western media outlets is that the media in russia is oppressed you know and it's all controlled by the state and so if we're getting reports maybe that putin's popularity is rising how do we know that that's not just fabricated information coming from state controlled media outlets in russia like where who gives us that information
1: I heard it from in NBC. So, if somebody comes with ideas in United States, then we have the same problem in the United States that we have in Russia. So either they know, or they come out with these numbers out of the you know uh, out of the blue. Uh, but we don't forget that President Putin has win has won elections. Now has won elections in many different ways of probably reducing the number of parties and political leaders. Uh, There are different ways of doing it. But don't forget the same thing happens and we discuss extensively in the United States, who votes, who can be voted and so on and so forth. Uh, But again, it's an autocratic regime. No question about that. But if we fight an autocrat, how do we dare to go to Venezuela and ask for help? How do we go to Iran and tell them, guys, we lift the sanctions if you give us some oil? We call Saudi Arabia or United Arab Emirates. Are all these democratic
2: states? Or are those our allies, are they democratic? We contest
1: democracy and the problems of democracy in the United States. Until a few weeks ago, we had President Biden going after the Hungarian prime minister for being an autocrat. We have the European Union that has put Poland at the gunpoint for human rights and other abuses. And we have Turkey, which has been a country that European Union
2: was discussing measures against it. And not forget, Turkey, an ally
1: occupies 40% of the territory of a member state of the European Union called Cyprus. So we we complain about Russia military intervening and try to get a, a part of Ukraine. And then we ally with someone who has done exactly the same but there's no problem. The consistency is problematic. Of course, can say this happened probably years ago, but there is no—if you go on—statute of limitations in the war or in murder. International law has to continue apply. May change a little bit, but these things do not change. You have to apply in the same way, in the same way, in different cases.
3: And I think that's a great application for classrooms, uh, Sam, is to think that it, too often the media portrays um, democracy versus uh, autocracy, or tries to, com- to compare black versus white, right? And there are definitely shades of gray here. Um, and the more nuanced, the more um, historical context and perspective we can show our students, you know, why is Rus- do Russians think differently from Americans, you know, Western Europeans? and the more we can make our students aware of the other side's perspective, the more understanding we'll have of this whole issue because it's not as simple as sometimes you turn on
2: the TV you get your sound bite and that's the story. And also Colin since you mentioned it,
1: political scientists have spoken about models of democracy and we speak about liberal democracy. And usually liberal democracy in the minds of our leaders in the West means we have elections and someone wins. Correct? Now, whether everything else is democratic, that's a different case. And we try to apply this idea of liberal democracy to other countries. We applied to Egypt and the elections brought out a totally different regime that we liked. The elections brought out a different regime in, in the Palestinian, territories. Then we don't respect what the people do and vote because Hamas is terrorist for us. So how do we put these things together? What is democracy? And what democracy entails in
2: practice? Is it just going to vote? And and same thing in the
0: Congo, in Nicaragua, in Guatemala, I mean, You can look at US intervention in democratic elections that have been unfavorable to us, you know, all throughout the world during the Cold War. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I I wanna ask one more opinion question before we go into some of the heart of like the facts of what has happened so far. And this is on the news, you know, nonstop right now. And so I, I'm wondering, you know, you don't see the same thing on the news with like Saudi Arabia helping the Houthis in Yemen and other places like that. And I am wondering, do you both, do you sort of think one of the main reasons it's on the news is because this is a autocratic invasion of a democratic country or, or what the United States sees as more of a liberal democratic country or do Is it more complicated than that? And I know the answer is yes, it's more complicated than that, but how so?
1: Okay, Uh, that's a very important point. But uh, let's try to understand something. We say that Ukraine is a democracy. Actually, Ukraine has the potential of being a real democracy. We do not forget that President Zelensky closed some television stations has imprisoned some of the political leaders there. In House arrest. we know that the UN Human Rights Council every year has a report about human rights abuses. Of course, I don't see, I don't have any evidence that would be a kind of genocide in Eastern uh, Ukraine, like President Putin claims. But there are certainly human rights abuses, but it's all Ukraine, had, which, Involves in human rights abuses. There are many other countries. I mean, uh, but it's not that everything is uh, rosy. If you go to Ukraine at this moment, uh, President Zelensky, we should not forget, was very much supported because of his campaign, his campaign, by the people in the so-called russophone areas. But he, it was, has been his inability to deliver because there are certain factions in
2: Ukraine that do not let him. So that's politics too. Uh, but we should, should look into the facts. We should look at the facts one
1: year ago, a few months ago. At this moment, we live in a very emotional, state of mind. We cannot listen or cannot hear and be very uh, critical to what we see and what we hear. Uh, As a scholar, I don't have a crystal ball of what is going to happen. I have many questions rather than answers. Uh, I try to understand things. I may have indications, but I don't have evidence. I have to wait probably for years down the road to, to learn what happened and why it happened. Uh, and we still learn what happens probably years ago today. So uh, we operate in a different time framework. Uh, but, but I'm not a journalist.
3: I would answer just quickly and two things there, as a European, there is a sense of shock, right? That this can happen in the European continent. You know, part of the reason Yanis and I and others work with the EU is because it was so successful in ending these events, you know, full-scale war in Europe. So to happen in our backyard is is just, uh, even though we're not in the World War II generation, we're, um, we're aware of the destruction that was happening. And that's the other thing. These, um, these, you might call it small-scale wars, insurgencies in different parts of the Middle East, for example, or Africa. Uh, this is just a different scale, right? The Ukrainian army now is mobilized; it's like three hundred thousand troops. Russia has, you know, just under two hundred thousand. You've got half a million men under arms. I mean, that's just massive amounts of.
1: I think Russia has one million soldiers at this moment, 2 million reserves. The Ukrainian army has 250 uh, and 200,000 reserves and 50,000 paramilitary. Uh, But when you are in defense and you have mobilized, you have 11.5 million to defend. So we should not forget since 2017, Ukraine has been the fifth or the sixth country that receives the largest military support by the United States. So they have enough things to defend themselves. We portray them as weak, and we emphasize what happens to civilians, but the military is numerous and yet they can defend. So we, don't, we should not see them in a kind of pitiful way. They don't have anything, they are not organized.
2: They can defend themselves. Um, But we should not forget that the war in Europe is not new.
1: Happened in the 90s, in early 2000s. We had the change of borders, a whole Yugoslavia collapse. We have Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, especially in Bosnia, Kosovo afterwards. Uh, it may come, happen again, but uh, because things happen in Kosovo these days. Uh, so we have to see how many people died in the Balkans.
3: That's true, that was shocking too, definitely, yes.
2: 79 days of bombardment in Belgrade by NATO forces.
0: Well, and I think to Colin's point, I mean, that just, that just confirms, I mean, the scale is massive that we're talking about, you know, and this is a, uh, a shocking war, I think, is a good way to put it, in the sense that yes, it's been building for some time, but um, but at the same time, there have been safeguards that have existed to sort of prevent this from happening, and the, the European Union itself existing has, you know, one of its goals, I think, is to help. Negotiate prevent things like this from progressing to such a large scale conflict. So what so far has the European Union done in response to the war, and I guess what is what do they consider their job to be in response to a conflict like this.
1: This is a very good question. I don't know whether the question should be put in different way. Uh, The European Union, I think uh, will be the one that will suffer the consequences of all this. Uh, There are appearances and realities and there's a conflation. The fact that, the NATO or the EU member states have agreed to impose sanctions is one thing. Whether they have agreed on what kind of sanctions is another. Germany still doesn't want to impose oil embargo on Russia. They discussed now, but not until now. Uh, Some countries, they decide to give medical support. Some others like Greece to provide military support. So there is no uni- unified view of what is to be done. And everybody looks, it's not on national interest. However,
2: what President Putin did helped certain things to happen, which in my opinion is in favor of the United States. If you remember
1: President Trump, in front of the camera was accusing the NATO Secretary General that he doesn't do a lot to convince the countries to pay more about their defense spending. Well, now we see that Germany comes up with a huge amount of money
2: for its defense, buying F-35. Finland buys F
1: 35. Other countries come to buy F 35. A plane, a war plane of great, if we want, capabilities, but so expensive that even the United States thought it was a mistake to create. So the others come and provide exactly what President Trump wanted. But also, President Trump Remember in front of the cameras for attacking Angela Merkel for doing business with the Russians and getting natural gas from them, non-stream too. Now, the non-stream has gone. So, and second point that is in favor of the United States. Third, President Macron has said that NATO is brain dead. Now, because of Russia, and the Russian aggression, NATO has a, a reason to exist again. And fourth, when President Biden said America is back, also meant the inability of the Europeans to go alone and therefore now will follow the leadership of the United States again, something that created problems between the two sides of the Atlantic the last four years. So I think overall the United States is in much better position than before. Although the Europeans in my case, in my opinion are not. So the European Union, somebody was saying it's too early to say. So I say it's too early to say about the future of the European Union and the unity of NATO.
3: Yes, and I would say one long-term huge challenge to the EU is just the simple number of uh, migrants coming out of Ukraine and how, where are they going to stay and how is in Poland and Germany, how is the EU going to cope with that? I mean, there's short-term humanitarian uh, you know, fr- frameworks have sprung up, but you need a long-term financial infrastructure plan that's going to be tax uh, more taxes for European
1: members uh, of
2: so, the
1: United States does not agree to get any Ukrainian refugees here. And we have many thousands of Russian and Ukrainian refugees in the southern border.
2: And they cannot even around the border because of the COVID uh, situation. So
3: everything Um, will be on Europe. And the more Putin does to destabilize Ukraine, the more he does to destroy it and to draw, I mean, maybe they'll end up with two know, like East, West Ukraine, I don't know. But the more he, he can do to wreck Ukraine's statehood, the more people that leaves, the more problem that is financially, if nothing else, then for the Providing
1: EU. that wins the war, correct?
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> May win the battle or the war, by, but tactically, but not necessarily strategically. It's too early to say again. So um, I'm curious.
0: Both of you are Europeans or former Europeans. Uh, we, grew has, up,
1: we were born there, grew yeah, up. There. Yeah, yeah,
0: form, former Europeans. But um, and I'm curious, has this impacted uh, anyone that you know in Europe currently, or uh, any of your families? Are they sort of? connected to this at all? Or do you have anyone living in Europe now that has sort of been, maybe not on the front lines, hopefully not of any of this conflict, but has sort of seen anything on the ground that's been happening?
1: Uh, We should not forget that Mariupol is still a city that we fight about. It's a very important city, strategic city because it's on the a port, but also is uh, the place where the nationalistic forces of Ukraine and the nationalistic forces of Russia meet. So it's not by accident that this uh, city will suffer. But also is the city where the greatest Greek minority in Ukraine is located. Has more than 120,000 people there. so personally i don't have uh, i i know people that have family members that manage to go to leave the city but uh personally uh there are certain things certain images certain sounds
2: that uh, bring some, uh, how can I say,
1: images or visions of the past for me. Uh, when the, with the Turkish military invention of Cyprus, we have the mobilization of Greece. So when the noise from the sirens, we listen several times every night in the different cities in Ukraine is something that reminds me a lot when I was young, the sirens. And that was traumatic for me because (laughs) my high school had the siren on the top and they had twice a year to get the the alarm test. So, and the second thing is the, the trains. When we had the mobilization, my father got us put in the train station of Athens when there were millions of people trying to leave when at the same time there were trains that Greek soldiers had to go to enlist in the reserves where they are too. So these people try to go in, in, into the trains from windows, from doors to make sure that they leave Athens. Although there was never a bad of hunters, but you, nobody knew. Uh, but it's some reminders. What yeah,
3: people for, can go through. For me, Sam, it, uh, because most of the migrants are staying in Central Europe or near to the Ukraine, kind of women and children, Britain has not had a large influx of immigrants. Although uh, the government is willing to take in, um, you're allowed to put a, a migrant up. All the, the passport requirements have been dropped for Ukrainians, and you can like uh, share your, your house with a Ukrainian migrant if you, if you want to. And I don't know anyone who's done that, but uh, just on a, on a much more trivial level, though, it, it does affect them, at least in one cultural area, it does affect my cousin living in London. He's a Chelsea fan. He goes, he's got tickets for Chelsea games, and now he can't go to Chelsea football games because he can't buy a ticket because the Russian oligarch who ran Chelsea has had all his assets broken. So it's just a, it's just a small thing, but there's there's other impacts culturally as well. One thing, like Giannis was saying, one memory that stirred up for me is Chernobyl. So I was in high school when Chernobyl happened, and, and the, the, uh, the radioactive cloud actually blew over, over central Scotland. And we were told to stay indoors for certain days. And so when the Russians were attacking Chernobyl, I was like, gosh, what's this going to mean for the whole of Europe if there's another event that affects Europe? That was an emotional thing for me, just to remember that, too.
0: Uh, I I think, you know, sometimes it's easy growing up in America to to forget how geographically privileged we are, Um, and even though, obviously, I grew up in the 9-11 era, which was really one of the first threats, you know, to the American homeland from a foreign force, but even still, you know, there's an article by Aaron David Miller on how geography explains the United States. And I think that it's uh, it's really poignant and interesting to use in the classroom, maybe for a time like this when you're talking about Europe, because Europe is so geographically connected and maybe Britain a little bit more distant. Um, but still, the United States has has had the privilege of having, you know two, relatively peaceful neighbors in the North and the South. And then, you know, as Aaron David Miller says, fish on the East and the West. And I think that that has really, um, it's kind of, it's very, I think, surreal. I think to hear both of you sort of talk about these instances that this brings up for you because I'm just, you know, I can't imagine something happening so close to the United States, like that, like either of those things,
1: with one exception: 1962, Cuban Missile Crisis.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it was not that the Soviets will attack the United States, but they we're very close. So that's the same argument that Putin does. Mm.
0: So
1: yeah.
3: And you mentioned a good resource, Sam. There, there. The BBC has. I use the BBC in my class a lot, often kind of like The Economist um, magazine because it often connects current events to past events and shows historical context. There was this fantastic article on like turning points in in European history. And um, just like the Cuban Missile Crisis in the sense was a turning point in the Cold War. uh, They've listed this as a turning point. I mean, right up there with um, the Congress of Vienna, the French Revolution, the fall of the Berlin Wall, I mean, I stopped my class on February 24th because I began to realize this could be a turning point in the history of Europe, if not the world, like uh, the, the current events. Yeah. So so I, there's a great article I can share it later and uh, that compares, including the Cold War. Yes, why is this comparable to that?
1: Colin, you mentioned the Congress of Vienna. And I think one of the Question we I pose to our students and my doctoral students is question research to investigate efforts of great powers to incorporate fallen great powers. So if we have the Napoleonic Europe, correct? Napoleon, France loses the war, but nevertheless, we have very fine if you want leaders of the time, Kastler in Great Britain, Metternich in Austria, Kapodistrias, the Greek guy, the foreign minister of the Tsar of Russia. And they understand very well that the future of European order requires the presence of France, even if it was defeated. So France was incorporated and was restated as a great power and share decisions with other great powers about the future of Europe. Hundred years afterwards, we did
2: exactly the opposite. We sidelined and marginalized Germany. The result is Hitler, not because Hitler was so smart, but he was just saying
1: things that everybody in Germany had in mind, but they couldn't say it.
2: Uh, in World War II, we are wiser. we integrate the great Germany. And we use the Nazi party because they're only, the only ones they know how
1: to run the administration for some time. You see, General Patton was right. I mean, how can how you can run Germany if you don't have people that they know how to run Germany? And that was the Nazi party. So we use it, at least the lo- lower rank. But that was the reintegration of Germany, good idea. But now we have another fallen power. Soviet Union becomes Russia. And this is the question whether we made mistakes in the reintegration or the integration process that created a monster we cannot control. So I think that's what uh, Professor Mensheimer wanted to convey and he has been very much attacked for his views. I mean, his views have been there for ages, but people became emotional now. Is, is the monster the whole responsible? Is the Frankenstein the whole responsible? Or also the scientists who create the
2: Frankenstein and without having a nice remote control? Mm. A
0: poignant and I think an intimidating question for the United States and other powers to think about. Are there any other points that you all wanted to discuss today? I know how we, I wanted to get more into the war itself and the military strategies, but, just for the sake of time, I think maybe those are things that we can sort of post resources for, um, for people to access. But is there anything that you'd like to sort of uh, spend a bit more time on or anything that you'd like to say uh, for the night is over?
3: So I was able to, so go ahead, Janice. No, go Go go
1: ahead. Please.
3: I was able to post uh, resources. We have an educators list to see it, and I was able to post some resources uh, a couple of days after, a week after. Um, we can do the same again uh, with the compilation here. We can release this to, to you, Sam, and the UCSS. Um, there, there is not a subject taught in high school and middle school that you could not connect to Ukraine. Right? It could be an economics class. You can talk about the globalization and the effects of you know, wheat prices on the, on the, um, on the global economy. Um, yeah, you can talk about um, migrants and humanitarian aid. And there's just so many ways to connect your class. What almost whatever you're studying, you can. There's that global effect of this war um, relates to what's going on in the United states. Um, I just mentioned one one thing we did last week at. Virginia Tech, we had a uh, EU council debate with four high schools. And one of the subjects was, should we let uh, Ukraine be fast-tracked into the EU? Um, so we are having, in, the, in a week or so's time, we're having actually an EU teacher training event. And teachers want to sign up, they can actually learn how to do an EU council in their own school. Um, and one of the topics we could definitely study, and this is April 2nd, could be, the role uh, the application of the Ukraine or Ukraine into the EU. So uh, we have resources we can give to teachers if they want to reach out, and we have events um, that uh, directly apply to this that we're doing in
2: series as well. The only thing I like to say since we don't have enough time is that things we admire. At this moment may be extremely problematic. For instance, there was this picture
1: of the young girl in Ukraine in a military uniform and having a weapon in her hands. We
2: want to demonstrate the readiness of young kids to defend their country. It's one part of the story. On the other hand is, what are we doing? When we see the kids in Africa, having weapons and fighting, we're appalled. How do they dare to do that? How do they allow kids to do that? But suddenly
1: in another conflict, which is much closer to us, we are married. This kid,
2: if it's killed, it's not a kid, it's a combatant. There's a uniform and a weapon. And in addition, I was very, very sympathetic in the arguments of the American military
1: with the situation they faced in Iraq. The American military tried to do its best to minimize casualties. It was very difficult because the Iraqi forces were inside the cities, operating inside the cities. We had to totally destroy Fallujah in our efforts to get rid of them. Now we admire the great idea of Ukrainian
2: forces to put the military forces inside the cities. So there was lots of discussions of change the law of war and saying that those who do that are war criminals when you put your military force inside the cities
1: because of what happened in Iraq, but now it happens in Ukraine. So I like to see the developments of international law, given what happened in Iraq and given what happens in Ukraine. So what we admire today may be not exactly what we li- have liked to happen.
0: think that is a really good place to end on because I think it shows just the nuance to all of this. It shows the complexity. And I think that's why it's so ripe for discussion and for examination in the classroom. Um, so I, before we leave, I just want to thank both you, Yanis and uh, Colin, for joining me today. Uh, again, Both of you are at the CIUT Center at uh, Virginia Tech, uh, and we so appreciate you just uh, giving us your time.
1: And very soon you will be a honorary member.
0: Yes, very soon.
3: (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure, Sam. Thank you.
0: Thank you for having us, Sam.
1: We appreciate it.
0: Um, and I just want to thank all of you listeners for uh, joining us today as well. Don't forget to follow the Virginia Council for Social Studies on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is VA Social Studies, all one word. And if you like today's episode, don't forget to give us a five star review and subscribe as it helps others find our podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Content to Classroom.